0: Welcome everyone to this week's edition of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover with you from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. We've got Kyle Crooks back at his home in New Jersey and now we will go to Atlanta. Say hello to Andy Demetra. He is the voice of the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets and Andy it's great to see you. How's the summer going as now we're almost there for Yellow Jacket football.
1: Yeah we're slowly starting to crank up and uh, not a moment too soon guys. Pleasure to be here. How are you?
2: Yeah, it's good to have you, Andy, and this is the, the exciting time of the year because you get fall camp and you hear the the pads crackling again, and I don't know if you're able to go to practice anymore. Everything's changed uh, over the last couple of years, but for you, where are you mindset wise as you, as you hit the end of summer and you get ready for that, that first football game? I'm sure this is an exciting time for you specifically.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think every broadcaster starts to see that wave building in the horizon, and uh, we know that. Uh, the work will be here before long, but it's nice to be out of practice and start to re-familiarize yourself with the team, start to get those feelings that all broadcasters get around this time of year, uh, knowing that we've got another broadcast season ahead of us and trying to have uh, a season that will approximate as best we can to normal, because I don't think anybody wants to go back to some of the protocols and disruptions and challenges that we all had last year so. Hopefully we can have as close to a normal season as possible. I know everybody here is looking forward to that. But I'm certainly looking forward to that as well.
2: And how about this past season for you, specifically with basketball and Georgia tech basketball has been a program that's been looking to get back to the tournament and, and be within the thick of things in the ACC, but asking from a broadcaster's perspective, because that's kind of where we're talking from here. How fun was that run to the NCAA tournament, winning the ACC tournament championship? The thrill as a broadcaster.
1: That was the most fun that I've had in my 18 years broadcasting basketball. Um, I had never been a part of a team that reached the NCAA tournament. In fact, some of my teams had gone in conference play one and 13, two and 12, five and 11, six and 10, two and 14, four and 14, five and 13. So not only had I never broadcast for a team to reach the NCAA tournament, The vast majority of the time, I was never even close. Uh, Georgia Tech won the ACC tournament. I had never been part of a team that had advanced past the conference tournament quarterfinals. So even though it was an unorthodox and unprecedented season with COVID, you could not have told me uh, that it was any less special being able to, to watch that team grow and get on that run at the end of the season, get to the NCAA tournament. And when we got out to Indianapolis, even though Georgia Tech lost in the first round, You get inside Hinkle Fieldhouse, and even though it was socially distanced, it wasn't a full house, um, the energy and the intensity and and all those familiar feelings were so palpable. And uh, It's a season that I will always look back on fondly. It was uh, really special to be a part of. Even though I wasn't always physically present for all of those games, I had to call some of them remotely. It was uh, something that I'll, I'll always remember.
0: And something you'll always remember as well, trying to remote broadcast. I mean, what was that experience like? Had you ever done any before the pandemic? And then uh, what was kind of your setup uh, during some of the either football or basketball games you had to do remotely?
1: So I would say, yes, I have been calling games remotely since I was an early teenager because I defy any broadcaster who, when he first had these aspirations and ambitions of wanting to go into play-by-play, didn't sit there in front of their TV and pretend to call a game that they were watching. So there was something vaguely sentimental about calling a game off a monitor. Of course, we all would rather be in person calling the game than uh, watching it off a TV screen, but I just took it as a challenge. Um, You know, our, our listeners at the end of the day, they didn't care whether you were in person or broadcasting remotely. They wanted to know how vividly could you describe the action and engage your audience. Uh, And so I didn't look at it so much as a hindrance, but as, a challenge to see how, how vividly I can still paint the picture despite some of the limitations of calling a game remotely. Uh, and, and so you kind of look forward to that challenge and it's, it's something that you've had no choice but to embrace. That being said, I, I think we're all excited to be back uh, in normal operations and to be able to call games home and away in person. Uh, so hopefully that is an era that we can maybe put behind us this year.
0: Yeah, we would love to say goodbye to that. And you mentioned that you kind of get your start as a youngster kind of watching some sports, doing your own calls. (laughs) What was the spark for you? What was the broadcasting bug that bit you?
1: So my origin story in broadcasting actually starts when I was seven or eight years old, but it doesn't directly relate to sports. Of course, I was your typical kid, loved playing sports, loved watching sports, loved following and talking about sports. But before I even knew what broadcasting was or had a concept of play-by-play, I always had this fascination with language and words. Uh, I used to love writing short stories on my family's little Apple GS computer, which I know dates myself. Uh, and my mom, seeing that, she was actually a math teacher. In fact, I'm the only person in my family who did not major in math and college. But she saw that. And when I was around eight years old, She gave me a paperback copy of a Roger Carlos resource to help me in my creative writing. I remember opening that and being mesmerized that there were all these words out there that could more vividly capture what was on my mind. And what is play-by-play, but the art of trying to find more vivid ways to describe something that's in front of us. So when I got my first taste of play-by-play about my junior year of high school for our little pea shooter school student radio station, Uh, It was like the stars aligned. And I knew from that moment, that was something that uh, creatively I wanted to pursue uh, as an occupation. So even before I I kind of knew what play by play was, I'd always had this fascination with words and to be able to combine that and my love with sports. Once I discovered play by play, I knew it was off to the races.
2: Is that an exercise you still do today is looking through a thesaurus or reading specifically looking for maybe specific words that you could use to describe something on that night's broadcast?
1: That's a great question. And yes, the answer is yes. And oftentimes I'll be reading. It doesn't even have to be a story related to sports, but I might come across a word and I see it and I'd never thought of it in a play-by-play context before. But I look at them like, oh, yeah, that could really apply to this particular action on the court or on the field, and I'll jot it down. I'm by no means unique in this regard, but I have a sheet of play-by-play terms that I've been cataloging and and curating since my very first year broadcasting professionally, which was 18 years ago. And I continually and and constantly am jotting down words that I take inspiration from that I'm hoping maybe when the time comes, I can apply it uh, in the flow of my own play by play. So, yeah, I'm constantly on the lookout for different ways to describe things in maybe an unconventional way and and in ways that maybe I didn't think before.
2: In terms of early influences for you from a broadcasting perspective, you know, a, a young Andy Demetra turns on the TV or listens to the radio. Uh, I know you went to Syracuse and there's a great lineage there of, uh, of great broadcasters, but who really stood out? Who really took your ear uh, in the early stages of you trying to do this?
1: So I think we're all influenced by where we grew up and the voices that we heard locally. Me growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, the first voices I remember listening to were Wayne Larrabee who used to do the play-by-play for the bears. He now does the Packers, the myriad other things. Uh, Jim Durham, who did the radio play-by-play for the Bulls. Once I started getting into broadcasting professionally, um, some of the voices that I gravitated toward were Kevin Calabro, who was the longtime play-by-play voice of the, the Seattle Sonics. I really thought of him as kind of a kindred spirit in the descriptive flair he had and how vividly he could captivate somebody with his descriptions. Um, Al McCoy is another guy who to this day is amazing to me, you know, play-by-play voice in the Phoenix Suns. He's been with that organization since I think the early 70s. Um, I could listen to him read a Waffle House menu and just completely mesmerizing just the way he can command something through the power of his voice. So it's those four guys, I think, that formed the basis of my, my, my influence and inspiration when it came to play-by-play voices.
0: Of course, Kyle and I are not members of the Newhouse Mafia, but we do want to ask uh, kind of what it was like for you at Syracuse. Who were some of the guys and gals you were running around with at that time that you stayed in touch with and are off to their own great careers as well?
1: It was it was cold. It was cold up there. That's how I describe my experience at Syracuse. Um, and it's funny, I, I after I graduated, the next time I, I got back to Syracuse was my first year at Georgia Tech. When we played up there, uh, in the final regular season game for basketball. So I, I, I am probably uh, an exiled member of the uh, the Newhouse Mafia. But, uh, you know, Dave Pass was doing the play-by-play there uh, when I was there, at least my first couple of years, and um, always looked at him as a terrific resource when I was an undergraduate there. He's probably the one guy that, um, you know, I, I looked to and looked up to um, when I was at Syracuse. But I still stay in touch with some of the guys that I went to school with, Damon Amendolaro, who um, works for CBS Sports Radio. Uh, we, we stay in touch pretty often, even though our paths diverged. He's more on the talk radio side, now more on the play-by-play side. But I, I think it's you know less the, the professional side than the personal side and being able to maintain those relationships that, uh, that, that mean a lot to me at this point.
0: Well, of course, you get the degree from Syracuse, you know, sportscasting you. You did everything right there. So, I mean, next is like probably ESPN or like everything you could possibly want. But as it turned out, you kind of had a different road. What was that kind of moment like after your graduation trying to land that first job?
1: Yeah, this is going to be chapter one of the memoir. Uh, So I originally had these wayward ambitions of wanting to be a TV sports anchor. Uh, I grew up in what you might call the golden age of sports center with the big show. And that was what I watched at breakfast every morning before school. I thought I wanted to do that. Uh, I was either oblivious to or ignorant of the fact that when I graduated, I looked approximately 15 years old. And I was a lot more wooden and uncharismatic in front of the camera than maybe I thought at the time. But nonetheless, that summer after I graduated, I sent my demo tape out to every station in a small and medium-sized market that had posted openings for sports anchors and sports reporters. This was in the pre-digital age where if you wanted to break into television, the only way you could do so was by cutting your teeth in some remote television market. I sent my demo out to probably 80 stations before I stopped counting because I didn't get a single callback. Uh, I'd love to tell you that I kept a stiff upper lip and I was unbowed and, and remained fiercely determined. No, it was demoralizing. Uh, so midway through that summer, I thought, oh, maybe I should make my radio demo just to be safe. And the majority of my media experience in college came on the radio doing play-by-play for our student station. I enj- always enjoyed doing play-by-play. I thought I had a modicum of talent in it, but at that point in time, I never viewed play-by-play, especially radio play-by-play, as a viable way to earn a living. But when you're over a billion applying for TV sports anchor jobs, that decision is pretty much made for you. And oddly enough, I go from six months of swinging and missing, searching for TV sports anchor jobs. And though it didn't happen overnight, I wind up getting two job offers in a 24-hour span for radio play-by-play, one of which was calling South Carolina Women's Basketball I accepted that. That's what first got me down here to the Southeast. And I've been doing radio play-by-play ever since in the Southeast. So I I, I hope I chose wisely.
2: And I wanted to circle back to to Syracuse and, and the student station WAER. And I know if I remember correctly, I know there's another station that the students work on as well in that area, but You kind of said play-by-play was something that you like to do, but TV was something that was still on the forefront, but on the radio side and the play-by-play side of things, just what was that culture like at Syracuse and being around AER, which me and Roger, again, we're not in the new house mafia. So we like to get some insight in what it's like.
1: Yeah. Uh, Very competitive. You're you're, uh, alongside a lot of like-minded people who have similar ambitions as you. Uh, There are only a finite number of games that you're able to broadcast. And so, it's really hard to crack that rotation. And um, it it forces a culture of, I think, accountability, where, you know, you constantly have to be uh, trying to improve yourself and being committed to that process. But uh, while it was a lot of fun to be sitting there courtside calling Syracuse basketball games and Syracuse football games, both home and away, I realized that is not a common arrangement in student radio where you're able to broadcast every game home and away alongside the commercial statewide network. Um, You know, you get good quality reps by the time you graduate, but you probably also leave some reps on the table. Uh, You can go to another school to start working towards a career in broadcasting and wind up with far more reps by the time you graduate than if you go work at a WAER in Syracuse. So um, I, I'm very grateful for the, the education I received there and the degree that I earned there. But I also recognize with the benefit of hindsight that there are so many other ways that you can gain substantial experience and quality play-by-play reps as an undergrad. It's, it's not the end-all be-all. And uh, you know, I, I respect everybody who finds their own path. It's not the path for everybody. Um, and and you know sometimes I wake up and think I wonder if that was the right path for me all these years later. Um, so I, I appreciate uh, the culture there, but certainly there are a lot of other viable ways to to pursue play by play as you're getting started as an undergraduate, uh, aside from just Syracuse.
2: And then moving ahead to South Carolina and taking that women's basketball job, just how much seasoning did you get in, in, in that job and those seasons that you're there, and just how important. Was that a part of your career to, to build that foundation as a play-by-play person?
1: It was three years that I look back on really fondly. I should note, though, this was the pre-Dawn Staley era. Uh, the job did not quite have the luster that it has now. I think my first two years, we went 3-25 and in the SEC. So despite some very long and lopsided nights, it was so much fun because you get 32 games to get better and better. And I I think my mindset is the same now as it was back then. How can I make my next broadcast a little bit better than my last one? And when you have 30 plus games to try to improve, you really become invested in the process and you start hearing the, the, the result of, of that preparation and that dedication to improvement. So to, to hear where I was, at the end of that third year compared to how I was at the beginning of that first year, uh, it was really neat to kind of see that, that commitment pay off and to see yourself slowly get better and better. Um, So yeah, even though I wasn't making a lot and I was an independent contractor, my paychecks ended when the season did and I had to cobble together all sorts of part-time and temp jobs from the, the middle of March to the middle of November to pay the bills and make ends meet. Uh, It it was uh, a lot of fun to to hit the ground running and start my career there.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what years you were there. I remember my freshman year at Tennessee, the Lady Vols beat South Carolina, I believe 72 to 36, like doubled them up. Uh, That was like 06, 07. But (laughs) I remember the pre-Dawn Steely era. It was uh, something.
1: (laughs) My my last year was 05, 06. So I don't believe I called that game, but I'm probably sure I called many similar to that, Roger.
2: Don Staley's haunted my dreams over the last four seasons (laughs) yeah this this is year five for me at Florida so I know (laughs) nothing but Don Staley and just having to be on the other side of that so
0: yeah that's pretty good. Well, speaking of that experience and your first time, you know, again, you're no, no longer at home from Western, you know, the Chicago suburbs or Syracuse, go down to South Carolina. And now you're wearing the Gamecock logo. You're getting to really be part of a team. Just how much did you enjoy that? Obviously, you've stayed in college sports since then. Did you just love kind of ingratiating yourself in the culture of South Carolina from that first job?
1: Absolutely. I, I remember calling my mom up my first week living in Colombia and saying, wow, I, I have to get assimilated to just how nice people are down here. Uh, and so the community was great. Columbia, uh, it just, I, I felt really at home there. They, they took great care of me and, and later my family. Um, and I, I, what I really appreciated, and maybe that I underestimated when I first came down to South Carolina to begin a career in college sports, play-by-play, was the way you feel integrated in the community. Um, and that's a really powerful thing. And probably what influenced me to continue working is the play-by-play voice of a team rather than try to go out and be a, a freelance play-by-play voice, and be somebody who parachutes from one game to the next, but you don't really have that one home team that you're broadcasting for. Um, so that was what stood out to me, just the the. The way you feel part of a community and the way that your voice matters to people in a way that it may not in other areas of play by play. I really love that. And I think it, it was really powerful and in influencing where my career would ultimately take me.
0: And for you, you go from doing South Carolina women's basketball to a few years later coming back to do men's basketball and baseball. But what can you tell us about the time in between for the company we now know is Learfield. It's been Learfield IMG College, ISP, IMG, all those different names we've had. Yeah. But what can you tell us about your time as a full-timer in Winston-Salem?
1: Yeah, so I started when it was still known as ISP Sports. Uh, as a production manager, they had just signed a, a deal with the ACC, and then a year later, the Big East to broadcast a national game of the week. They put me in charge of the production and coordination of those packages. I was their studio host. I hosted some of their ancillary programming. Uh, And then my big break came kind of uh, a year later when they expanded their National Game of the Week package in the ACC from six Thursday night games to six Thursday night games and six Saturday games. And the guy that we had employed for those Thursday night games, Bill Rosinski, he was still doing Westwood One NFL broadcasts. He would be traveling for his NFL assignment, so he couldn't call those Saturday games. And uh, while I'm sure my greatest ability was my availability at that time, and I was already a full-time salaried employee, so they didn't have to shell out any extra money for a broadcaster to assume those six Saturday games, uh, they let me do uh, those national games of the week that aired on Saturday. And I'll forever remain indebted to IMG for giving me that opportunity. Was a huge break for, for that stage in my career to be able to call national play-by-play. And yeah, three years there, um, I like to think that it was kind of the, the equivalent of medical school. Uh, very flexible hours. You can work any 80 that you wanted during the week. Uh, but like med school, you hope that uh, through all those bleary-eyed nights that you're able to put that lab coat on at the end and they'd be able to call you a doctor. In this case, being a doctor was... Uh, The full-time play-by-play voice of another school, which, like you said, turned out to be South Carolina. Even when I left South Carolina, I thought, man, if there was an opportunity to get back here, I I would jump at that chance. And lo and behold, that opportunity came in the summer of 2009 and uh, was fortunate to put my hat in and uh, win that battle royale and be able to get back there for another seven years.
2: I'm interested, and, and we could kind of couple this with the Georgia Tech uh, question, just the interview process of going through, and, and obviously you knew the people at South Carolina, so you, you have a foot in the door at that spot, but the overall interview process and these big jobs that you've had in your career, what has that been like? What's the preparation for you when you go into those uh, settings to, to make sure that you're ready for any questions they're going to ask?
1: Sure. Sure. I think my interview process at South Carolina and at Georgia Tech was very similar because, in both situations, I think a lot of broadcasters will encounter this. They might become a competitive candidate for a job, but oftentimes, colleges are going to be predisposed toward people who are from that area or who already have worked in the market, who may have gone to those schools or you know they, they, they're, they're their alma mater. I was none of those things. When I applied back for the South Carolina job, there were a lot of reasons why they shouldn't have considered me. I was still on the younger side. I didn't go to South Carolina. I wasn't from the South. I didn't have the classic Southern broadcaster's voice. I don't mean that in a a derogatory way. I just didn't sound like a lot of the broadcasters that their fans grew up listening to and admiring. So there were a lot of boxes that I didn't check. But the things that you can control when you're applying for a job like that, um, a, it's the quality of your play-by-play, but it's also how you can engage a fan base in all the ways other than just your play-by-play. I always have, have tried to pride myself on being a radio broadcaster. Who can be more than just a radio broadcaster for my school? To use your voice and your platform to engage with your fans in all these other different ways, whether it's writing columns, whether it's hosting podcasts, whether it's doing creative interviews with their student athletes. Your voice can carry in so many different creative ways other than just when you sign on for a game and when you sign off. And I always tried to be very conscientious of developing those different ways to communicate and convey the stories of my teams. I think that clicked with both South Carolina and with Georgia Tech. Um, and so I would say to any broadcaster, don't Don't underestimate the importance of that. As you're building your brand, building your identity, uh, that those things can often be really powerful and help you overcome some of the the disadvantages that you may have when you apply for the play-by-play position of a school, not being an alum of that school, not being from that area or having worked in that market previously. Those things that you may have in your, your repertoire that other candidates may not have those could make all the difference between whether you get the gig and you don't. Um, That's wisdom that I would impart to anybody now, because I'm convinced that without those things, I wouldn't have been able to get back to South Carolina. And I don't think I would have gotten to Georgia tech without.
2: Can you take us through your daily or your weekly schedule? Cause obviously, like you said, there's so many other things that you're doing at Georgia tech. You're not just calling the games, you're hosting shows, you're emceeing events being the voice of a, of a big school that has a big fan base, can you take us through kind of a, a week for you? And other than the actual broadcast, some of the other things that you're doing to fill up your schedule?
1: Sure. And, and one of my mindsets has been show your fans every day how much you care about them and how much you're thinking about them. So even while I'm preparing throughout the week for, say, a football game, every week I'm writing a feature column about one of our players or one of our coaches. Um, I am hosting our TV shows. And I think you can do that very passively. Here's the script that was written for you. Just stand in front of the camera, read what's off the script, interview the head coach, and that's it. Or you can do something that gives value to your, your viewers and your fan base. And so we're putting together features about our players, interviews that kind of spotlight them in a creative way. Um, Even just using Twitter and social media to share statistics that you may uncover in the course of your preparation or little nuggets, tidbits, anecdotes about players that just by by virtue of your access and your proximity to the program, you may find out that other people won't. Sharing that with your audience on social media, it shows that you're invested and you're immersed and that you really deeply care about your team and this school and these teams that you're a fan, you know, that that, that your audience is a fan of. uh, It's just doing something substantively every day that shows that you care. Uh, I think that's the main thing. There's so much that varies week to week uh, in our preparation and and our tasks as we get ready for a game day. But at the end of the day, that's what it's got to mean. Show people how much you care. Show them how much you're thinking about them. Ultimately, you'll gain that loyalty. You'll gain that credibility. Um, and that's kind of what drives me every day when I when I come into tech and, and in the process of preparing for a game.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned social media has been such a powerful tool. I think that's how I first came. you kind of got on my radar, just trying to keep up with South Carolina baseball uh, once they were so good in 2010, 2011. Just you had to love using that as a tool through those championship runs. Obviously, the radio part of it was great at the College World Series. But what was the interaction like with the fan base during that time?
1: I learned that South Carolina has a very lively social media fan base, Uh, (laughs) which can be good sometimes, can be a little counterproductive at other times, but I I think Twitter kind of proved to me that it's such a great extension of what you do in your radio broadcast. Not everybody is going to be listening with a rapt ear from the moment you sign on to the moment you sign off. But there are so many other ways, social media being one of them, where you can share the information that you uncover and compile over the course of your preparation. They may not be listening at that exact moment you share this great tidbit or anecdote about a player, but it can live on by you tweeting about it. People can consume it that way. And so they're still being able to take the information that you're sharing and that you take the pains to find just in a a non-radio way. Um, And so you know, Twitter reinforced to me just how much our voices can carry aside from being able to broadcast on the radio um, and being able to cultivate that following, I think, through the quality of the information that you share on social media. That's really important to me. And it's something that I, I think a lot about. I don't think people care where I went to lunch yesterday. I don't think they care about some random interaction that I had with a person on the street or as I'm driving into work but not care about that neat biographical nugget. I found out about one of our players. That's the kind of stuff that I'm trying to share on social media. And that's the thing that I think reinforces our radio product because people are seeing the, the, the kind of info that I'm sharing and it'll burrow in their minds. Oh yeah. When Jordan tech is playing, maybe I should listen to Andy. Maybe I should tune into the radio broadcast because I'm liable to find out something else that's unique or interesting about our teams by listening to him. And, and his call of the game. So social media, it's really important. I think you have to use it in the right way, but it can be a really powerful publicity tool for your own broadcast based on what you share and you post. You
0: mentioned Twitter was kind of exploding right as South Carolina baseball was exploding with championships, Rosenblatt, as well as TD Ameritrade. Just what was that experience like for you getting to call those championships, especially your first year with South Carolina getting to close down (laughs) Rosenblatt with the championship?
1: Yeah, I kind of won the, the winning lottery ticket, didn't I? Back in 2010, your, your first year back and you go and you call a national championship. The Gamecock fans have been starred for, you know, for decades and decades. It, it was very humbling to call a moment that you know meant so much to so many people. I will be the first to admit, I didn't deserve to have that call. Bob Fulton did, the longtime voice of the Gamecocks. I remember after we had packed up and were walking out of the radio booth at Rosenblatt that night thinking, I hope my final call did Bob some measure of justice. His health was deteriorating at that time. He had passed away the following October. Um, and it was so deeply humbling to me when it got back to me that he really liked my final call and thought it captured that moment well. But I, I would be the first to tell anybody. Uh, I was just the custodian of that moment. Bob Fulton was the one who truly and honestly deserved it. But, uh, you know, it just it, it was very humbling just uh, to know what that moment meant to Gamecock fans. It's funny. Uh, just yesterday, we had our press conferences here for football. We have a grad transfer quarterback from Temple who was from Columbia, South Carolina. And afterwards, our SID introduced him to me. And he immediately starts reciting my final call from 2010. And goes, man, I remember listening to you as a kid. And I'm thinking, well, number one, that's really flattering. Number two, while I am old, because uh, <laughs> now he's six 6'5 Masters candidate at Georgia Tech, and he's reminiscing about listening to me when he was a kid uh, growing up in shape in South Carolina. But uh, just to, to, to know that, that that moment still resonates with people, I mean, what can you say? It's something that you never take for granted uh, and something that you'll always cherish for the rest of your career.
2: And when you think back to that final call, what's, what's going through your mind? Because you, you don't want to screw it up. As broadcasters, you want to give the information. And, and for me, sometimes yes. I can get in my own head about these things. And I, I feel like I'm in the majority with that. So how did you, I guess, not get in your own head about a, a national championship final call?
1: You're right. Uh, people always ask me, did you have that final call scripted out? And my answer has always been not really. I know that sounds like a total hedge, but here's what I mean by that. Uh, I did not want to have a final call scripted out word for word for a couple of reasons. Number one, I was really wary of having a call that would sound overly rehearsed and contrived and not authentic to that moment. But also by that point in South Carolina's run in Omaha, I'd gotten so superstitious. I didn't want to have this elegant final call all hashed out in my mind, ready to go, only for UCLA to win the next two games in the championship series. And I'd feel like I forever was responsible for prolonging the curse of South Carolina baseball. The only vague idea I'd sketched out in my mind was something about a wait being over. But that was honestly as much thought as I'd put into it. So fast forward to extra innings of game two. It's the bottom of the 11th inning. South Carolina has a runner on third. Whit Merrifield is at the plate. He's now with the Kansas City Royals. You hear that unmistakable ping of the bat of him hitting a line drive into right field. And as the runner from third, Scott Wingo, is stomping on home, I just I call the play and I, I say the game is over. The game is over because I'm in disbelief like everybody else that, oh, my gosh, South Carolina just won the doggone thing. It was somewhere between that first and second. The game is over that some synapse fired in my brain that said, hey, dummy, the game isn't just over. The wait is over. And so that's how it tumbled out of my mouth. The game is over. The wait is over. The Gamecocks are the national champions. Uh, Was it a risk to maybe go into that second game not having something that was scripted a little more definitively? Maybe so. But I wanted, above all, to have a call that sounded authentic and captured the emotion of that moment. Um, It was the same thing just this past spring when Georgia Tech won its ACC tournament championship. I had some vague idea of where I wanted to go with that final call, should they win. But I wanted to make sure that I was staying in the present moment uh, and that I was able to connect it in a way that sounded authentic. Uh, That was kind of my my mindset going in. I'm grateful it worked out. I'm grateful I didn't trip over my words because you're right. That is the, the the fear that every one of us broadcasters lives in when. We have the ability to call something like that and was just very grateful that it, it turned out in a way that, that South Carolina fans still seem to remember.
2: And, and switching over to the technical side of, of play-by-play now, this is a, a fun part of the podcast. We're really getting nerdy with a lot of this stuff, and I know our audience loves it. Well, starting Anybody who
1: knows me knows that is not going to be a problem. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we're a we're, we're very nerdy podcast. We had Kevin Harlan on a couple weeks ago, and that was about as nerdy as it gets, and we loved it. So from a technical side of, of play-by-play for football, what are you looking to hear? When you turn on the radio, what makes great football on the radio to you?
1: What makes good radio is can you captivate me through the power of your descriptions? Oftentimes when I'm toggling through Sirius XM, I will settle on a broadcast. I may have no rooting interest in that game, but if I'm listening to a broadcaster who I find really engaging and compelling in the sharpness and creativity of his descriptions, those are the broadcasts that I find myself sticking to a a lot longer. And that's been my mindset whenever I'm calling a game. I know the Georgia Tech fans are going to be there and stay with me no matter what. But if somebody is just, flipping the dial on Sirius or XM, and they turn on a Georgia Tech broadcast, am I going to be able to captivate them in a way that will entice them to want to stick around and listen to me for an extended period of time? For me, that's what separates great play-by-play from good play-by-play or otherwise play-by-play that may not stay in my mind after I've signed off. But the power and the creativity of your descriptions. That's always been my guiding principle whenever uh, I prepare for a broadcast.
0: Speaking of football as well, you take over the Georgia Tech job while they're still running the option. How did you kind of train yourself to call that properly?
1: Uh, I was very fortunate that I I still work with an analyst in Sean Bedford, who was an offensive lineman uh, in that system. So he was a great tutor when I, I first came aboard here at Georgia Tech and getting me up to speed on the terminology of that system, making sure that, hey, There's no such thing technically as a fake. It's all a read when the quarterback has taken that snap from under center because it was very important for me, especially that first year to gain credibility with my audience that I knew the fundamentals of the option and were able to to convey that in my play by play. Other than that, I found it was a really fun challenge to be able to take this system where a lot of the plays look very similar, but to be able to call the nuances in a way that made each play sound a little different. And so it was a great test of how many different ways I could describe a pitch or the quarterback peeling out from under center so that you didn't have that sameness kind of seep into your play-by-play that that would make it sound a little dull or unimaginative. So um, it became a really good parlor game, uh, a really good parlor trick as a broadcaster to be able to call the option um, and I think it made me a better broadcaster because it really made you think uh, more critically about how you describe things that have an element of sameness to them, but do it in a way that is descriptive and vivid and, and varied.
0: When you call football as well, are you using binoculars? I mean, how what are what's your booth kind of set up like? Uh, and do you have a spotter who helps you out with your spotting board and yeah. finds tackles, things like that?
1: I'm not a binoculars guy. It just feels too unnatural to me. We have two spotters, Uh, one who is always spotting for the opposing team, and then I'm very fortunate to work uh, with Al Ceraldo Jr., who's our home spotter. He is the son of the longtime legendary voice of the Yellow Jackets, uh, Al Ceraldo Sr. Al Jr. has been spotting since 1978 when he was a teenager with his dad. And so I know that there is nobody better than Al Sr. to point out who's where, who's lined up. And especially when you had the option, you had two A-backs who are off the tackles, they're lined up and you may not be able to see their numbers that well. And so I really lean on my spotters to be able to point out, you know, who are the A-backs, who are the B-backs? I'm not always trained to see who's coming off the field, who's coming onto the field. Uh, Sometimes I'm finishing up the play or, or looking at something else. And so I really rely on my spotters a lot To tell me, all right, who's in the slot? Who are my A-backs? That was so important to me because there is no more sinking feeling as a broadcaster when somebody rips off like a 30-yard run and you call it from, you know, it was some running back that you call initially and oops, it was actually somebody else. So uh, I, I definitely trusted my spotters a lot, leaned on them a lot, particularly when we were running the option.
2: Do you have any specific memorization tactics for the opposition to make sure that, you know, the skill players right away? Like, do you go back and watch film for that specific purpose to make sure you can see as who wears a wristband? And even if, because if, the, the uniforms now, sometimes you can't see the numbers. So you have to rely on certain characteristics. Do, do you, do you have any certain memorization things that you do? You go back to.
1: I definitely watch a couple of games of that week's opponent and I'm checking out their formations. I'm checking out their personnel where a guy is liable to line up. Um, If there is some identifying trait that he has, like you said, I'll make sure to jot that down, and that helps with the memorization process. If somebody has dreads, if somebody wears a towel tucked into the back of his pants, that's really helpful to me. But also, I'm looking for formations when I'm studying that week's opponent because I think your ability to frame the picture – With that pre-snap formation, it's so important. And so to be able to jot down just some different ways that I want to describe the pre-snap formation of an opponent, I think that's really helpful in accelerating the learning process if you're play-by-play and accelerating your preparation for that week's opponent. So I'm studying sort of two different things when I'm looking at an opponent. Yes, the, 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 the personnel, but I'm also studying the formation and how I want to describe that. Uh, Come game day. Those are two really important things for me, the the memorization process. And I think there's also an element of muscle memory involved where you're able to see a formation and know kind of preloaded how you want to identify it when you get to game day.
2: And I'm sure Roger will get into prep in just a, a couple minutes, but I did want to ask you about what makes great basketball play-by-play on the radio because you've done it for a long time and you do it really well. So when you're, we talked about football, when you turn on basketball on the radio, what really separates guys and gals?
1: I would say two things, musicality and creativity. You have to have really good musicality in your play-by-play. And I think basketball lends itself really well to it because it's a sport that's built on flow. So be able to, to be able to call a half-court possession where that ball is moving around in a melodic way, I think can be really captivating for a listener. But then also the creativity. There is a lot of sameness in you know, a particular play in the half-court, the dribbling, the passing, the shooting. But how many different ways can you imaginatively describe those things? And that's something that I've always been chasing and seeking throughout my career. How much more vivid can I make the description of a half-court possession, a dribble, a shot, a pass, a post-entry, the way a guy is holding the ball, the way he's dribbling the ball, the type of pass that's performed just along the wing. I feel like if you can engage the the, the theater of the mind, so to speak, in your audience through the variety and the vividness of your descriptions, I think you're, you're more liable to hold their attention throughout a broadcast. And that's something that I've always been evangelical about. It's something that I've always tried to – to pursue and to, to to refine in my own play-by-play. The, the broadcasters that I find myself gravitating toward the most over my career are the ones who do that in my mind the best and something that I've always tried to, to, to chase in my own play-by-play. So musicality and creativity, I feel if you have those two things, you have the foundation for really good basketball play-by-play.
0: Yeah, going back to prep for just a minute, I don't know if you have any spotting boards uh, with you for basketball or baseball, but if you do, we'd love to see them. And if not, we would love to just hear you describe what's important to you and how kind of your style has evolved over the years.
1: Sure thing. Okay, so uh, this is a very, uh, I would say, inelegant basketball chart that I have. I know there are more aesthetically pleasing ones that are out there. Um, I did not make these templates. I don't know who did. If you made this template and you are listening to the broadcaster's hour, You have my everlasting gratitude because I've been using this for probably more than a decade. It served me well. And at this point, my eyes know exactly where to go to find the information that I need. So as far as the nuts and bolts of it, I try to to make in numerical ascending order the players who are most likely to play. The players who, as you examine the box scores, are going to get the majority of the minutes. And then you have, you know, your basic season stats. You have your heights, weights, hometowns, any preseason accolades or postseason accolades. And then this box here, I'm always putting in what they did in the last game, what they did the last time they played Georgia Tech. If there are any hot or cold trends that you parse out from studying the box scores, I want to have that right at my disposal. And then any kind of biographical or anecdotal information. I've often found I can call like a fast break layup really elegantly and feel really good about myself doing it. That's not often what an audience is going to remember in listening to my play-by-play. But if I can share some really exotic or bizarre anecdote that I found in the 15th page of a Google search about this particular player, then uh, that's what they're going to often remember the most. So I always try to to do my, my homework on each individual player because you never know when you'll be able to slip in those little biographical nuggets. And, and oftentimes when you do they're they're the little pieces of information that are going to stick in, in, listeners' minds the most.
0: Then how about for football? How do you like having it organized?
1: Uh, for a football, I have an organized organized um, formationally. I'll just give you kind of my, uh, my offensive uh, spotter chart. You got your quarterbacks here, your offensive linemen, you got your receivers here, you got your running backs here. And I probably don't have as many names on my spotter chart as probably the average football broadcaster, because I really believe in having space for my notes and my information. Um, And so you'll see here, I've got the the top running back and then I want to have an extra box for some additional notes. Um, And again, it's not just the the nuts and bolts statistics. I want to know all about him and, you know, just little tidbits about who he's replacing, what he's doing, any kind of scouting report stuff that you, you glean over the, the week of your preparation. That's really important to me because um, if you can texture your broadcast with all those other things, the, the stats, the scouting report, the, the storylines, and the biographical stuff, I think you find that you have really well-rounded play-by-play um, that is always adding value for your audience. Every time, every series that they're tuning in, every commercial break that you come out of um, that to me is really important, holding the attention of our listeners. And so I I may sacrifice a few guys down on the depth chart to, to be able to to cram all that information in, but it's something that I've always believed in something that I always try to make space on my chart for.
2: And how often are you going to practice during the week, say in a given football season? What are some things when say you go to practice that you're, you're trying to look for that you could bring to the broadcast?
1: For basketball, I'm always going to the practice the day before a game, and I'm always, always going to shoot around. It's so important to see what they're running, to hear the coaches explain how they may be able to take advantage of an opponent's vulnerabilities defensively because it adds so much credibility to your broadcast when you can then share that information on the air. Same thing, too, when the scout team is running different sets you're able to kind of get into your mind how you want to describe certain actions on the floor from your opponent. And I think that's important too, to be able to jot down different descriptions and, and verbs and adjectives that you know could apply to that night's opponent. I think it's really, really important. It helps build that picture before the pictures start to come into view once that game begins. So I'm always going to practice at least the day before our basketball game, always going to shoot around and for football, I like to, to watch at least a couple of days during the week. I think it's important to see the different personnel groupings, um, see what they're working on, see what they're workshopping, and then taking that information that you have and being able to kind of put in the back of your mind different phrases and ways that you want to describe that uh, come game day.
2: And I'm interested because, you know, Roger has hosted uh, the coaches shows on the radio side at Alabama and you do it at Georgia tech. And, and you mentioned the TV side, some of it is mostly scripted out and you're reading off a teleprompter, but when you do the radio coaches shows, how much of that board is done by the time that you do that show so that you can talk about the opponent with the coach and, and have all that information in front of you are using that board uh, to, to help structure the coaches shows
1: Uh, more so football than basketball because our our coaches show for football airs on Wednesdays and our basketball coaches show airs on Monday. So usually by Wednesday, I have a pretty good functioning understanding of that week's opponent and I'm able to get more into the the tactical side of things in our conversations with our coaches. Basketball, you're a little more handicapped because our next game may not be until Wednesday and I'm still trying to, to audit our last broadcast and audit that last game with with Georgia Tech's own performance. Um, So I am utilizing it a lot. I think um, oftentimes we're keeping the focus on our team, our individuals, and uh, that's where having that institutional knowledge of your team really pays off over the course of a 60-minute show because you're able to to cite statistics that come from your preparation uh, that can help uh, add more credibility to the kind of questions that you ask. So I am using it maybe more so during football than basketball, but it's certainly a resource that if you have at your disposal, you you better use.
0: Well, we've talked so much about your college sports experience, but what about uh, some of your professional experience? So you've done some work in the NBA with Chicago Bulls, WNBA, the Atlanta Dream. What'd you like about those experiences? And I'm sure so much was similar, but it also was a little bit different.
1: It was, um, I grew up a Chicago Bulls fan. Um, My childhood basically overlapped with the Michael Jordan years. I think we all have that job that when we're kids staring at the ceiling at night, um, we dream about calling. For me, it was always the Chicago Bulls. So uh, in the 2018-2019 season, it was the beginning of my third year at Georgia Tech. um, I got the word that their longtime play-by-play voice, Neil Funk, one of the voices that I listened to growing up, uh, that he would be cutting back in his road schedule, and that the Bulls would be filling those spots with a host of uh, other broadcasters. So I reached out to the point uh, point person with the Bulls, who just so happened to be from Metro Atlanta. So we did share that connection. Um, I probably had a lot more to overcome in establishing myself as a viable person to fill in for the Bulls because I was a radio guy, even though I grew up in Chicago. All of my professional experiences took place outside of Chicago. But uh, by the grace of God, uh, they, I wouldn't even, now. let me not say that because I I don't want to make it sound like it was a miracle that I got the job. Uh, Lost for edit. Three, two, one, good. Um, No, uh, but I was very fortunate that they got that call. And, um, you know, I will remember the, the thing that I think meant the most to me was being able to call my parents. And being able to tell them, hey, make sure you tune in October 26th and 27th or clear your schedule because I'm going to be doing the play-by-play for the Bulls. And just to be able to share that experience in that moment with them, um, it's something that I'll always remember. Um, calling those games, it's interesting. I was not nervous at all. I thought I'd have a lot of butterflies, you know, trying to, to realize the gravity of that moment. But I was just strangely calm all throughout that day, and even when you hear that countdown in your ear. Um, and it was just I, – I figured, like, I'd worked so hard to put myself in a position to have this opportunity. I'd be doing myself a disservice if I, I, were, I were nervous. And I had a lot of fun, so much fun. And, in fact, my last game was versus the Hawks at State Farm Arena. The game went to four overtimes. Uh, It was the highest scoring game in Bulls history 168 to 161. It was the third highest scoring game in NBA history. And so while that may likely be the last Bulls game I ever get to call, uh, at least it was a heck of a way to go out. So uh, a a moment that uh, I'll always be able to cherish and share with uh, with my family and um, just something that I look back on and will always uh, always smile having gone through that.
0: That's a really great experience. And uh, your course continuing your role with Georgia Tech. And, uh, you know, we've asked this of several broadcasters before. I'd love to get your take on it. You know, the role of being a voice of a school, it was so well established in the 80s and 90s when radio was king. And we've touched on a little bit with some of the extra things you bring to the table. But what's the next 10 years like for positions like yours, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I, I think all of us radio broadcasters would acknowledge either... Explicitly or implicitly, that we may no longer have the captive audience that we had 10, 15 years ago. Every game is on television now. You can find it on your phone. But I refuse to buy into this notion that our medium is somehow marginalized. Our voices still matter to our fans. And in fact, I would argue that because of social media and the ability to share your highlights on Twitter or Instagram or even TikTok, that our voices carry more now than they ever have. But you have to be proactive in sharing your, your work with your audience in all the different ways that they consume media, not just on the radio broadcast. But I, I, I always believe that there is going to be an appetite and a desire for fans of a school to hear these thrilling seminal moments in their team's history through the eyes and through the descriptions of their play-by-play voice. And as long as that demand is still there, our jobs are never going to go away. At least that's my fervent hope. Uh, But I do think that we as radio broadcasters, we just have to think a little more uh, concertedly about being able to make an impact outside of just our radio broadcast, making sure that our voices carry and all these other different platforms that we have at our disposal. And as long as we're doing that and we're continually engaging our audience, um, I, I think who we are and what we do, it'll matter 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, when hopefully I still have a voice and Georgia Tech still wants to have me around.
2: And let me ask you this, your, your favorite venue to call a game in the ACC and in the SEC, you can do football and basketball, obviously, with ACC and then basketball for the SEC. What do you got?
1: At the risk of having my, my credentials revoked, obviously, uh, my favorite venues in the ACC will be Bobby Dodd Stadium and the Cambridge Pavilion. But if those are not uh, eligible for entry in this list, ACC, I think everybody would probably say Cameron Indoor just because it's such a, a hallowed venue in, in college basketball. You're not seated courtside. You're up in the, the catbird seat. But I think it's still, um, you know, one of those venues that you step into and you, you kind of feel the history uh, when you walk inside. SEC, you know, I'll always have a soft spot for williams Bryce Stadium. I'd say the most unholy noise I've ever encountered in my life was in Baton Rouge. Back in 2012, when uh, South Carolina played there as the number three team in the country versus LSU, which was also ranked in the top 25. That's an experience that I'll never forget. SEC venues, uh, Rupp Arena is another one of those college basketball cathedrals that uh, you always remember. I remember that we were playing there for South Carolina, and I look up behind me, and there was a bride and groom. Literally, uh, she was in her wedding dress. He was in their tuxedo. They were seated in the front row of the upper deck. So apparently they decided to forego the reception in favor of watching Kentucky, South Carolina, and Rupp. Uh, so, for many reasons, I would say Rupp is one of those venues that uh, you always appreciate being able to broadcast from.
2: o Dome didn't make the list here, there on the SEC basketball. I'll, I'll keep that all in right. mind. There's a little. He's mental probably no. still
0: sweating from the old days of the O Dome before <laughs> the renovation. It, you know, it was swampy. I'm all, yeah, it
1: was out a little, little swampy. I always remember that <laughs> chlorine smell. Yeah. Uh, and the fact <laughs> that the, the fact that the student section is literally oh, right yeah. behind you. And what I do remember is that we were setting up. Uh, for a broadcast and the uh, dance team was preparing their routine under the very watchful eye of their coach. And uh, they were each had signs. And then in a row they held up the signs. This was like, you know, two and a half hours before tip off the the, the building hadn't yet opened. They were just in their practice, but they held up their signs in front of their coach and it said, will you marry me? And behind her on bent knee was her boyfriend with the ring. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know if we were meant to, uh, to watch that moment, but uh, I'll always remember that. Uh, I, I, think the, I think that night went better for her than it went for South Carolina, if memory <laughs> serves. Uh, because I do remember, Kyle, uh, I, I did call a game there, uh, and it was 55-15. to 15. Florida was leading at the 12-minute mark of the second half. This was Frank Martin's first year as head coach of the Gamecocks. That is the one game. In my career, I love broadcasting. I hope anybody who's listened to this has gotten that feeling. Uh, there is, it takes quite a lot to make me think, just get this game over with. That was the one night where I'm like, man, just I can't wait to get out of here. This is no fun, no fun at all.
2: Yeah, we, we've all been, been there. Me and Roger have yeah. had those games, for sure. And this will so be my I'm final one. So if, yeah.
1: if I'm a little biased against the O-Dome, I, I think you now know.
2: That one game sticks out, and, yeah. and the chlorine smell, apparently. Yeah. Um, so your advice to, to young broadcasters, what are some of the biggest mistakes, you think, Andy, that you hear in younger broadcasters now that maybe they'll learn over over time to to improve on? But what are some things, maybe some advice, that you give to the youngsters in this industry?
1: Um. The the advice I would give is usually pretty broad, but I tell them I have the same mindset now that I had when I was a young broadcaster, 22 years old, trying to make my way through this business. How do I make my next broadcast a little bit better than my last? Um, It's important to be critical, but not be self-conscious. Be unsparing in your critiques of your own work. Constantly seek ways to make that next broadcast better than the last. But at the same time, don't flaw yourself so much that it starts to, to eat into your self-esteem and your confidence that next time you're on the air. Be confident, but don't be subconscious. Try to make every broadcast a little bit better than the next. What is it that you can focus on, that you can sharpen up, that you can improve that next time you're on the air? And as long as you commit yourself to that growth mindset, your play-by-play will ultimately get to where you want it to go. The other advice I would give is be a radio broadcaster who's not just a radio broadcaster. Don't let your impact start when you sign on and end when it signs off. It's a very inelegant analogy, but I liken it to a strip mall. Your play-by-play will be that anchor tenant, and that'll always be what your success as a broadcaster will be judged upon. But make sure those other storefronts are filled up, whether it's doing podcasts, whether it's doing something for YouTube, whether it's writing columns, whether it's using social media in a creative and imaginative way. The more that you can fill up those storefronts, the more that people will hang around and consume and enjoy what you put out. If you can make yourself a very well-rounded broadcaster who's able to tell the stories of your team on many different platforms, not just on the air, it'll make you such a versatile and ultimately valuable broadcaster uh, as you try to make your way up and onward in the business. So try to make every broadcast a little bit better than your last, commit to that growth mindset and be a radio broadcaster who's more than just a radio broadcaster. And I think you will find um, a lot of success for yourself in this business. Had it not been for those two things, I don't know if I'd be sitting here talking to you guys with a GT on my chest. So I, I like to think that in some small way, I'm proof that those two pieces of advice can pay dividends for you down the road.
0: Yeah. And with the last question, I was going to ask something similar about advice for guys like Kyle and I, who are, you know, women's basketball announcers, baseball, softball, you know, are around big programs, but ultimately have the desire to be the voice of a program. Just what are the next steps for guys like us and so many watching that we know we're going to be in the pile of 200 applying to be the voice of fill in the blank mm-hmm. state? But what are the ways to kind of stand out and continue getting better at this point in our careers?
1: If you continue to broadcast at a high quality, if you continue to, um, have an identity for yourself on the air, and as the voice of a program, the really good schools will be able to extrapolate that, right? I, I was not the football play-by-play voice at South Carolina. Now, I will say that my last few years there, every I was hosting our post-game call-in show, but every Saturday at William Fry Stadium, I would trudge up to our photo deck I made a chart during the week, very rudimentary, but it was still a chart. I'd go up there with a digital recorder and a headset and I'd cut a practice tape of myself doing play-by-play because I didn't want anybody, if I was applying for a, a football play-by-play job, I didn't want anybody to think, oh, well, he's not currently doing football play-by-play. I don't know if we can trust this guy. I wanted to show them that I may not be you know, the, the football play-by-play voice at my current school, but I can assure you this whole time. I've been doing football play by play and I'm ready for that opportunity when it presents itself. But uh, just make sure that you, you're, you're working hard, you're producing at a high level that you are doing all the things as the voice of your program that can apply to the play by play voice of a school that you're interested in. People will be able to see that. They will be able to see, all right, this guy is producing such high level content, high quality play by play that's the kind of person that we want representing our program. And the fact that you're not presently calling football, we're not going to hold that against you because we know that, you know, the quality of your play by play, if you're good, you're good. And it'll carry over. And all these other things that you're bringing to the table, we know that you can bring this to our organization, our franchise, and we want that for ourselves as well. That, that's the advice I would have. Um, don't let that discourage you. Uh, it, it, People will be able to see it. You sometimes have to show it to them, but they will be able to see it if if you're committed to doing the right things in your position right now.
0: That is excellent advice, and this has been an excellent hour with you, Andy Demetro. We just appreciate your insights so much and hearing these stories of your career. You're one of the best in college sports, so we just really appreciate your time with us this hour.
1: Well, guys, I appreciate that. Thanks so much. I, I hope, uh, you know, broadcasters understand that this is just uh, this is great talk and, uh, you know, even somebody now, you know, getting ready for my 18th year, I listen to, to your interviews with the other guys, and I learn stuff. And so uh, it's just a great resource. And I appreciate you guys doing this uh, for the industry. And, you know, best of luck. And, you know, like I said before, my greatest ability sometimes is availability. So I appreciate you guys having me on.
2: <laughs> thanks so much, Andy.
1: All right, guys. Thanks. All right. Thanks to Andy Demetra. Thanks to all of you for watching Broadcaster Hour.